Well, it was good to see Lawrence, one of our musicians with the banjo again this morning. Lawrence is a big Chicago Cubs fan, so he's really happy because the Cubs made the playoffs. And, and I guess they're doing pretty well from what I hear. But I know you Cubs fans don't get your hopes up too high, but that's okay. Uh, do you know, uh, I know Lawrence knows the answer, do you know the most beloved Chicago Cub of all time? His name was Ernie Banks. I think he died just a year or two ago. He lived to a ripe old age. They called him Mr. Cub. That was his nickname, Mr. Cub. Nobody, and, and all the Chicago Cubs fans, nobody loved Ernie Banks better. He played for them for years. And um, the legend is that the reason there are such a thing as baseball doubleheaders, baseball doubleheaders when they play two games on the same day back-to-back. They don't do that a lot anymore. It used to happen all the time, two games on the same day. The, re- the legend is that one day, it was a beautiful day in Chicago, and Ernie Banks walked onto the field, Mr. Cub, looked around, and it was so gorgeous, he said, let's play two today. I don't know whether it's true or not, but that's where it comes from. Well, today, we are going to play two. I mean, books of the Bible. First and second, Thessalonians. And the letters go together. We take them both together because they're addressed to the same community of Christians. And first note that both of these letters are written not just by Paul, but there's two other names that say they come from two people named Saul, uh, Silas, sometimes Silvanus in some Bibles, it'll read, and Timothy, Silas and Timothy. Let's not forget these two important New Testament figures. Silas and Timothy were companions of Paul, and Paul writes on their behalf as well. And when we think of the letters of Paul, we can think of uh, others who were part of his ministry and perhaps contributed to the content of some of his letters and what he was sharing to the churches and the Christians. As you read First and Second Thessalonians, when you get there, uh, you'll notice they share a lot of similarities. And readers have kind of wondered why Paul even wrote the two different letters, because Second Thessalonians repeats so much of what's in First Thessalonians. Now, First Thessalonians was probably actually the first letter, at least that we have, that Paul wrote to any churches, his earliest letter. Remember, the letters in the New Testament of Paul, Romans through Philemon, are arranged by size, from the longest to the shortest. But if you were to arrange them by date or chronology, 1 Thessalonians would be first. By the way, we share something. Our church shares something with the Thessalonian Christians back then, and I guess even now. You know what it is? They could see... Mount Olympus, the Mount Olympus from their church. And we, there's very few churches in the world that can say that, right? We share that with them. I understand Mount, the Mount Olympus is about 50 miles away uh, from Thessalonica in Greece. It's in Acts chapter 17, back in the book of Acts chapter 17, that we read how the Christian church first came to Thessalonica. It was Paul and Silas who were the first ones to bring the message of Christ to that city. And while many people believed that message, there was also opposition. Paul and Silas had to flee the city very fast to save their own hides when those who were opposed to the preaching of Christ became very violent. One of the reasons for the first letter to the Thessalonians was to let the Christians in Thessalonica know that Paul and Silas, who had to leave so quick, were okay. Another reason is to let them 
know that Timothy, who was a young pastor, who was a protege of Paul's, had come to Paul and Silas and he'd given them a very encouraging report about the Thessalonians. Paul was worried about how things were going with the believers in Thessalonica and he sent Timothy back to find out and, and how they were doing and then to report back to him. The Thessalonian Christians had been very receptive to the gospel. They were a community of faith and love and hope. Um, Paul says that the message that he and Silas came preaching to them came not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. They had a great reputation as a church, and other churches around the Mediterranean heard about them and were encouraged by their example. They accepted what they heard, not as a human word, he says, but as God's word. You took it exactly as God's word. But Paul is a little nervous. He knows firsthand the climate in Thessalonica. And he knows there's a significant part of that town and the people there that is hostile to Christianity. They're hostile to the name of Jesus. And he knows the Christians there, they're suffering persecution. They may still be suffering. Maybe the church is dying, he thinks. Maybe they've thrown in the towel. And that's why he sends Timothy to encourage them. But he also asks Timothy to come back to give a report how they're faring. You know, any parent knows that when your child is at a distance from you, uh, that can create nervousness in how they're doing. It can be just for summer camp. It can be sending them off to school. It can be they've moved away for life. And there's, and there's I think, always a little nervousness. And um, particularly if they're going through some difficulty, then the distance seems greater. I remember just getting anxious, handing those keys to my daughters for the first time and letting them take the car on their own for the first time and the distance and the nervousness of that. And then we've, as they've moved away to college and, and getting on with their own lives, there have been times of, of anxiety. What's interesting, Paul uses the image of both a mother and a father, of parents, to speak about how they feel about the Thessalonians and that relationship. They cared for them, he said, like a mother, like a father does for their children. Paul and Silas, they had to hightail it out of Thessalonica before they were probably able to instruct these young churches in everything they wanted to do in the gospel. And they have no contact with this place anymore, and they're, and they're worried. And then we read this. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and your love. Persecution makes any Christian nervous. You know, we don't like to be attacked verbally or otherwise for our faith. We don't like to be ostracized. We don't like to be viewed suspiciously. That's how it was with the Thessalonians. They suffered physical abuse as well. And one of the themes, running underneath God's big story throughout the New Testament is suffering for faith. Certainly Jesus led that way by losing his life on the cross. Throughout Acts, we read about the trials, we read about the pressures of those first Christians. There aren't many books of the New Testament, as you read through, that don't mention trials or persecution or difficulties. And in some ways, it will always be our heritage, those who truly worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Thessalonians, they sent Timothy to them to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that you would not be, he says, unsettled in these trials. And then he adds, you know quite well we were destined for these trials. 
which is the reason for the church. It's the reason for the writings of the New Testament. They're for our encouragement amidst the trials. Part of the reason for the church is to support, to strengthen, and encourage one another as we live our lives in Christ, sometimes as minorities, right? It takes boldness to speak on behalf of Christ. It takes boldness to live with, for Him in certain contexts. And there can be risk in relationships. But may God give us the boldness to be His witnesses for Him in all times, in all places, even if it causes some rub. So Paul was nervous about them. But you know what? The Thessalonians were nervous too. They were particularly nervous about their understanding or maybe their misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ, about the end time. You know, the early church believed so strongly that the return of the Lord was going to come in their lifetime. All heck was breaking loose around them, and they thought things aren't going to go on very longer, very much longer. As a matter of fact, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, if you read it, ends with a reference to the second coming, to the return, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every chapter. Now, if you don't believe me, read it for yourself, okay? I dare you. Read it for yourself. One of the big questions the Thessalonians had was what happens to our friends? What happens to our loved ones who have died? Do they have any chance to be in God's kingdom? Will they be lost forever? When Christ appears again, how will they... Can they be found? Can they end up with him? Paul uses the term to fall asleep to refer to those who have died. He's not denying death. Um, it's, it's more than merely falling asleep. When It is death. But to say that those who have died have fallen asleep is to subtly affirm that an awakening is going to come, what we know as the resurrection, the final day of resurrection. Physical death does not have the final word for the person who is in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we die, it is like we are asleep, waiting for that great getting up morning, as the Negro spiritual saying, that great getting up morning. Now, I know some of you aren't morning people, and the thought of resurrection to be like waking up in the morning doesn't sound great to you, but work with us, okay? It's just an image just an image. But Paul assures the Thessalonians that when Christ returns, he will bring with those, with him, those who have already fallen asleep. In fact, they will precede those who are still alive. First the dead in Christ, then those who are still living will be caught up together with him. Death is not the end, folks. And he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Don't be down. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. Encourage one another. Well, the Thessalonians, though, are also nervous about when this is going to happen. And Paul says, we're not going to write about the dates. We're not going to write about the times. He says, because we don't know the dates. We don't know the times. He just says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, no one will know when it's going to happen. We know about the day of the Lord, don't we, from our reading of the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Prophets like Joel and Obadiah and Amos and other prophets speak of the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be a day when God brings the world into account. When all injustice and wrong and evil will be ended. For God, God will bring the world to rights. When Jesus came, he spoke about the coming of the Son of Man. And when people 
came to know that Jesus was God come to earth, they realized he was speaking of himself. Jesus said, the coming of the Son of Man will be like a thief in the night. That's where Paul got the idea. And the point is not that Jesus comes as a thief to steal. The image is used to illustrate the unexpectedness of this event. With Jesus, the day of the Lord entered a new dimension, a new understanding. In Acts, we read that the the apostles were told that Jesus, just as they saw him go, so someday they will see him come again in that same way. Uh, When we get to 2 Peter, we will read again about the day of the Lord and how it will happen like a thief in the night. Of course, the book that most people associate with the second coming and the events of the end times is Revelation, where Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. Well, everyone was wondering how soon, soon was going to be. Revelation ends with the prayer, come Lord Jesus. It should be the expectation, the desire of his return. And the Thessalonians were as worked up as anybody else about this. And that still happens today, doesn't it? For 2,000 years, people have been making nervous predictions. And they've been talking about teachings and interpretations about political events and disasters and unrest. There are entire churches and ministries. You can find them on TV uh, that are built on so-called expertise about the end of all things. And there are books and there are websites and there are conferences. Some of you get a book in the mail this week. Did it get mailed to you? Did you see it? Yeah, a lot of you. I got it too. Um, It can all be very fascinating and very entertaining, um, sometimes disturbing, but be careful. The subtext of what Paul is writing, what he's trying to get at is he says, don't be distracted by these things. Be about living for Christ and sharing his message. Let God take care of the times and the seasons. Apparently, right from the beginning of Christianity, there had been people saying all kinds of things about the day of the Lord. And Paul writes and he says, chill out, just chill out. Yes, he says, it will come suddenly. Even Jesus, the son, Jesus said, the son doesn't know the days or the times, only the father knows. Paul acknowledges the element of surprise in Christ's return. And there are two people, there are two reasons people are surprised when a thief comes, right? First, we're surprised because it's unexpected. But the second reason the surprise of a thief in the night can happen is because people are asleep. So he comes at night. And... uh, The Thessalonians can take confidence, Paul says, in that they are people who aren't asleep. They are awake. They are people of the day living in the light, which was to say they were living in the way the Lord wanted them to live. They were people of faith and hope and love. To live in the night, to live in the darkness, is to live against the Lord. And so again, Paul says, so encourage one another. Build each other up with these words. Don't scare each other. Build each other up. The coming of our Lord, whenever it happens, should be an encouragement for the people of Christ, not something to fear. We will be with him. Now, to me, that's good news. Paul is writing to comfort. He's writing to encourage amidst this nervousness. But that wasn't enough. There were obviously more questions that came. They probably got the same book in the mail that we got this week. So there's another letter, a second letter to the Thessalonians, remembering 
Remember, we're playing two today, so not just 1 Thessalonians, but 2 Thessalonians, and Paul again addresses Christ's appearing. And it seems that people were saying that the day of the Lord had already happened. They were even claiming, look at Paul has written in a letter that the day of the Lord already happened. And the Thessalonians were nervous that they missed the train. The whole thing was over. They've been left. And Paul assures them, the Lord hasn't come yet. He says, because the man of lawlessness hasn't shown up yet. Oh, well, that set everybody real relaxed, didn't it? Who's the man of lawlessness? What's this about? He's not named, not identified. I'm not sure Paul even knew exactly. But Paul does say the man of lawlessness, he'll be, he'll be of Satan. He will be against God and that the Lord Jesus Christ will destroy him, he says, by the splendor of his coming. We can't go to, into, and we don't need to go into all the possibilities and the theories about the second coming this morning. Believe me, there are plenty of others who do that. They've done it and more. Let me give what I hope is some wisdom that we can hold on to in our faith. First, we always need to approach any interpretation of these things with humility. We need to be humble because um, as John Stott, who was just one of the fine Bible teachers of this century, as John Stott said, I read this, he said, you know, he said, church history is littered with uncareful, self-confident, but mistaken attempts to find in Paul's words a reference to some contemporary person and event. There have been too many predictions and too many mistaken predictions. Second, just because people have done all kinds of wild things with these parts of the Bible, we don't just arrogantly dismiss it. We don't think of it as some fantasy from people who just weren't enlightened like we are, as if we're enlightened. This is a part of Scripture. It's part of instruction from the Lord. Jesus himself referred back to the book of Daniel. He said, there's a prophecy of a lawless person who will come and desecrate the holy place, being the temple. And you know what? In 169 B.C., that happened. A, a, a Greek leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, came into the temple and said he was God, did exactly that. Uh, there are any number of figures in history who could probably fit the bill as the lawless man, right? There are any number of Roman emperors who were just filled with brutality and vicious hatred toward Christians who could qualify. Paul never uses the term antichrist, never in his writings, although he may have the same idea. John, interestingly, is the only one in the New Testament who uses the term antichrist. And John, in his letters, says there have been many, many antichrists who have come. I think a faithful interpretation of these passages in Thessalonians is that there have been many such fulfillments of lawlessness. And yet there is still one yet to come who is the epitome of them all. And there is a lot that we can't know and maybe that we don't need to know. Augustine, the great church father and Bible scholar, said this about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 after he read it. I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. There you go. Maybe we're in good company. Paul's purpose is not to further the already nervous Thessalonians. He wants to get them to relax. 
to relax in the confidence that no matter what happens, no matter when it happens, no matter how it happens, they belong to God and they are okay. So just live for Christ. You ever had the experience of driving down the freeway? You're driving down, you know, 215 or you're on 80, and I don't know, you're listening to the radio or, or, or you're listening to Phil's sermon on your iPod that day, and, and you're just kind of out of it, and you're driving along. All of a sudden, behind you, the sirens and, and, the, and the flashing lights come behind you and, you, and you jump, and you're startled, and you impulsively slow down, and you look at your speedometer to see what you were doing, and, and you say, well, no, I, was, I seem to be doing okay, I'm all right, and then... The patrolman zips by you and goes to another car and pulls them over. But you're nervous. Paul is trying to assure the Thessalonians that since they are living in the love of Christ, that they're driving the speed limit, and they're okay. Whenever and however the end of time plays out, God is in control of history. And he has put limits to evil and its forces and the ultimate victory will be his. Now, let me, let me just wrap this up by saying people wonder about where the world, where all history is, is headed. And God says in his story, he doesn't give the details, but he says in his story, it's coming to his kingdom. That's where it's headed. He is the Lord of history. Christians live in the hope for that kingdom. All of history is headed to a time when all things will be reconciled in Christ, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We do not know how that will play out. We trust God for that. And you know, what we do today, what we do today only has meaning if there's a vision of some future goal. It makes no sense to send a child to school and nurture him or her if there's no hope that it's going to make any difference for their future. Uh, if you enter a university in the hope of one day becoming a doctor, that hope is going to shape your life. It will direct your course of study. It will direct and dictate the time and the effort and the money you devote to that. Christians live with hope of what is coming. And if the future goal and the hope of this world is within God's plan and God's kingdom, then to pray and to love and to care for the poor and to take care of creation and honor Christ in all our ways makes perfect sense. There is a hope that it will make a difference now and it will make a difference beyond. If the future goal of this world is nothing but destruction, then where's the hope? Where's the significance? Christians believe History has purpose, that God is guiding it, and we look forward to the day of Christ's coming with hope. We look forward to a day when Christ will restore all creation and make all things right. All the suffering we know will be swallowed up in the glory of God. Whatever wrongs that need to be righted will be done so by Him completely and in perfect justice, as only He can. And all who have died in Christ and whoever are still alive will be together with Him. That should be our comfort. That should be our encouragement. And Christians live not only with hope, but with confidence. Confidence that the day of the Lord will not take us by surprise if we are living in the light of the Lord as his sons and daughters. God knows what he's up to. Our job is to pray and wait and live for him in the meantime.
Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table of our Lord.